Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with award-winning NPR journalist Philip Ewing. He's election security editor with NPR's Washington desk, and he helps oversee coverage of election security, voting, disinformation, active measures, and other issues. Ewing joined the Washington desk from his previous role as NPR's national security editor, in which he helped direct coverage of the military, intelligence community, counterterrorism, veterans, and more. Today, we're talking about the possible ramifications of the current crises in Iran, Iraq, and the Middle East. Phil, what can we perhaps expect or look for in the near future as a result of this assassination crisis? The near future is probably going to look very tense for the next few days and perhaps even weeks. As we speak, there's a huge U.S. military effort underway to stage aircraft, troops, ships, and equipment in the Middle East in very many places, not just Iraq, to respond for some kind of contingency uh, if the Iranian government or when the Iranian government decides to respond to Qasem Soleimani's death. We don't know whether that response will in fact come in those coming days or weeks, but there are bombers being positioned in the Indian Ocean. There are paratroopers being sent from Italy. There are uh, equipment uh, shipments being sent on cargo aircraft and uh, via the sea. And so we're in a tense wait and see period to see whether this could escalate into a broader confrontation or a conflict. We, we know that six B-52s have been ordered to Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. Uh, we keep hearing uh, about the Straits of Hormuz and and the danger that that goes on with them and is focused on them. Could you talk about that a bit and tell us why that's important? The Straits connect two key bodies of water, the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea, and they enable the passage of shipping from a number of ports in the Persian Gulf that carry energy products out of Middle Eastern countries to markets far afield in the world. And in fact, these days, since the fracking revolution in the United States, much of that oil actually does not come to the United States. It goes to Asia and especially China. So it isn't a question for Americans necessarily of supply because the United States is pumping and producing a lot of petroleum products, especially gasoline, which is what matters to most people. But oil and petroleum and energy 
are fungible, which means that if there is a confrontation or a crisis or if Iran were to try to block the straits so that energy cannot go um, out of the Middle East and to the world and so that empty tankers cannot go to the Middle East and pick up more oil, that could make the price of energy go up. And there's a historical precedent for a very bad shock to Western economies when in the 1970s, uh, OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, did cut off a lot of the supply of oil to the West. And that had very deleterious effects for governments across the world, but especially the United States. As I, I as I understand it, the Straits of Hormuz are, are are very narrow at some point, twenty miles wide, but the navigable uh, section only two miles wide. D- does that add to the danger? It does add to the danger, and it also um, makes it a very easy tactical problem for Iranian commanders to try and cause mischief there for two reasons. One, it's a small slip of water, as you just described, but also from what I understand, and I'm I'm not a navigational specialist, but I uh, sometimes play one on the radio, <laughs> the territory is actually all Iranian waters, and it's a doctrine by international law and practice called innocent passage, which enables shipping from any nation to go through those waters, since there's such a degree of shipping and commerce that takes place through there. And so the Iranians not only have a naval or strategic case to be able to use warships or mines or small vessels, uh, fast inshore attack craft or fast attack craft as they're called, but also a legal case, an international legal case to try and constrain the flow of energy there. However, that would also mean constraining the flow of their own energy traveling out of Iran in some cases and also shipping and there are important Iranian ports inside the strait. But also that's kind of the big enchilada from a strategic provocation perspective and it would certainly bring an overwhelming response by the United States and potentially other powers. So the question for Iran now, if it has decided as the foreign minister and others have said that it will respond in some way to Soleimani's death is how to respond. And will it do so in a way that will bring a confrontation with the United States, for example, over the Strait of Hormuz? Or as the foreign minister, Jarad Zarif, is saying when we're talking on Tuesday, will it do so some other time in some other place in a way that the United States is less prepared to respond to? We just don't know. One last question on the streets of Hormuz. Is there a military problem there? Could could naval ships be, be blockaded as a result of any damage to the streets? There are problems with that scenario, and there are precedents for Iran attempting to close it. This took place in the 1980s during what were called the tanker wars in 1987 and 1988. And the uh, Reagan administration's solution at the time was to declare every ship passing through the strait, or at least every oil tanker, to be an American vessel, and thus it could enjoy an escort from an American warship in the protection of the United States Navy. That resulted in a direct confrontation between the U.S. Navy and Iranian naval forces, which did not go well for the Iranians. And so the vessels that were involved, the oil platforms that were involved in the naval uh, personnel uh, really got manhandled by the United States. And one lesson for the Iranians was that interfering with the strait brings that kind of response, but also a direct confrontation between Iranian forces and the U.S. military probably will not work out to Iran's advantage just because of how great uh, the disparity is between the kind of power that the United States can bring to bear and the kind of power that the Iranians can bring to bear. 
that's been the template that Iran has chosen when it's tried to confront the United States and other uh, superior military powers since then. And that may be why, so far, given the menu of options that Iranians have to cause bedlam and mayhem across the Middle East and to focus on specific flashpoints like the Strait of Hormuz, the Iranians have chosen not to do that so far because they want to pick some target somewhere or choose some course of action that they think will distinguish itself better, but also not up a fair fight, also not set up a fair fight with the United States. Let's talk about Americans' allies, uh, both in Europe and, and in the region, if, if there are any in, in the region. Uh, how does it impact on them? And I know that they've had sort of a standoffish uh, view of all of this, uh, but they can be impacted not only by the oil and the economic impacts, but, but also military impact. That's true. And the big picture in the Middle East in the Trump administration has been one about foreign governments whipsawed back and forth about what the strategic aims of the United States will be for the region. The president, when he talks about his vision for the region, talks about the adventures and misadventures of the second Bush administration, about blood and treasure squandered, about trillions of dollars wasted on conflicts. And the takeaway from listening to Trump talk is of a president who wants to get out, who wants to bring American forces home, to shrink the vast military footprint the United States now has in the Middle East, to restart peace negotiations with Afghanistan after he closed them the first time a few months ago, if you remember that story. Right. But the actions the administration takes on a daily or a weekly basis have had the result of expanding the American footprint in the Middle East. Um, there are more forces now than there were when President Trump took office. He's sent them to Saudi Arabia, for example, to safeguard sites there against potential Iranian attacks. There are American ground troops with um, mechanized vehicles, not tanks, but Bradley fighting vehicles and others in eastern Syria guarding oil sites there after the president changed what the American strategy was going to be in northern Syria. And now we have this confrontation with Iran, which has resulted in this big surge of deployments. Much of the 82nd Airborne Division is going. Troops from the 173rd Airborne Brigade, which is based in Italy, the B-52 bombers, which you talked about, naval forces, and others are all going to the Middle East. This is not what the president says he wants when he talks about this. And so for local governments trying to understand where they fit in America's vision for the region are scratching their heads and trying to still understand that. More recently, there was this contretemps with the Iraqi government, which got or saw a copy of a draft letter saying that American forces were going to be maneuvered out of Baghdad, the capital, and which was reported and understood there and also in the United States as the first step toward withdrawing American forces from Iraq. But then it turned out, according to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, and the Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, that in fact that was a mistake, it was a draft that hadn't been intended to be circulated, and that American troops are going to stay put there. Even though the Iraqi parliament um, has passed legislation calling for American forces to come home, and Iraq's prime minister has indicated that he might support that. Um, we don't know what's going to happen. We're all kind of waiting and seeing where this leads. And although 
the president had a strategy for Iran, one of what he called maximum pressure to try to get it to make further concessions about its malign activities, its rocket program, and also its nuclear program. The broader strategy is still one that people are trying to understand. One generally wants to have confidence in their military. Uh, You've spent the bulk of your career covering military or national security in some form or another. How does a letter draft be issued uh, as an official uh, letter from the military with outgoing through the proper channels and with the top brass of the military going, oh, it was an honest mistake. That That's not really reassuring. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great point. I can only speculate, but what I can hear Defense Department officials over many, many years saying in response to your question is, this is a planning organization. If there is a scenario in which the nation of Brazil has to fight France. There may be a file in the Defense Department somewhere that says what the uh, requisite military posture of the United States would be in the event of that conflict. And a lot of that planning takes place behind the scenes for scenarios that never take place. But commanders, first of all, have the bandwidth and the brain power to do that because of the staffs that they recruit for that purpose. And a lot of it involves going over scenarios uh, based on what they're instructed by their chains of command and also what's in the news. So one reference in the draft letter was to action by the Iraqi parliament about the need for Iraqi sovereignty with respect to American operations there and the premise for the American deployments to Iraq in this most latest in this latest phase, which are supposed to be collaborative with Iraq's government. And specifically, the Iraqi government invited the United States to return under President Obama to help fight against the Islamic State in the north and the west of Iraq. And that premise has continued, even though a lot of the combat, but not all of it, against uh, ISIS has ended. And what the letter appears to me to have been was Uh, prudent planning by someone to say there could be a situation in which um, we win, the Iraqis decide they don't want us here, or the political situation changes. And that desire comports with orders from our own chain of command in Washington for us to move troops out of Baghdad or bring more troops out of Iraq altogether. Iran has a great deal of political influence in Iraq. And uh, its influence was one reason in the Obama administration that the president decided to observe the agreement that had been concluded by President Bush to withdraw all American forces from Iraq, even though there were people in his own administration, including the then Defense Secretary Leon Panetta and others, who were saying that they thought that was a mistake and that he should try and find a way to keep American forces there. As history records, Uh, Panetta and the other skeptics were proved right because the Iraqi forces that Americans left behind folded like a cheap suit when they were confronted in the north by ISIS, and it necessitated a huge recommitment and redeployment by the United States to try and begin again with supporting Iraq to try to fight ISIS there and then later in Syria. I'd like to focus, if we could, and maybe this will add some clarity for, for people, on, on different countries, Iran for one, Iraq for another, uh, Syria, 
uh, Israel and the uh, fight against ISIS. I, I'd like to separate those. I know they're interconnected, but if we can separate those for a moment. Iran, we've already talked about. There's uh, allegations or assertions of revenge and, and in some form, and some of it may be immediate, some of it may be long-term. It's sort of wait, I'll get you at some point kind of rhetoric. Uh, that's understandable. Talk about Iraq, though, and Iraq being an ally, as you just mentioned, uh, their parliament on Sunday saying, no, we don't want your troops here anymore. Uh, and that wasn't just prompted by them, but it was prompted by the government of, head government officials of Iraq for them to pass that resolution. Uh, we've got President Trump saying we're going to put economic sanctions on Iraq like they've never been put on before. What does that mean to Iraq and its relationship with the United States and its relationship with Iran and its neighbors? It's a very complicated question. And some of the outlook involves answers to questions that we may not have because a lot of this policy seems to be driven by the president himself. And... Um, for one example, um, as we talked about a little bit earlier, President Trump has been very clear that he considers the post 9-11 response by the United States in Middle East in the Middle East to have been a costly misadventure. Mm -hmm. Now he has declared victory over the Islamic State and he has the Iraqi government uh, creating the pretext under which he could withdraw American forces from Iraq history through his own actions and through this latest twist has presented the president with a turn of events that he says he wants. And yet his response to uh, Iraqi Prime Minister Adil Abdul Mahdi and the government is to threaten them with sanctions in order to be able to preserve the 5,000 or 6,000 or so American forces that are in Iraq today. So uh, it's not a mathematical equation where you can say that one plus one equals two because if that were the case, we would have arrived at a point at which you would expect the president and his, and his administration to say, fantastic, our work is done. These American forces can come home. That is not the statement the president has made or the plan that is coming from the administration or the Defense Department. Um, I don't know whether they'll change their mind or I don't know whether they believe that the American forces in the Middle East and Iraq specifically are there mostly as a strategic counterweight to Iran. That's kind of what comes through in the body language from the administration. And when President Trump visited Iraq um, and he went to Al-Assad Air Force Base, my colleague Tamara Keith was in the pool with him for that trip. He said, basically, we're here to watch Iran and we'll be watching. He had a phrase like that. But Posting American forces on a third country's soil requires the consent of that country. And if the Iraqis don't agree for their own reasons and also because they're under the sway of Iran as well to have American forces there, this could approach the point of a separate confrontation, not only between the United States and Iran, but the United States and Iraq over the mission for American forces there. And if Iraq is just a strategic um, airstrip one for the United States to be able to fight Iran, 
the Iraqis might have something to say about that and they might object. Their objections um, may not be powerful enough to dislodge American forces and the president may not agree to do the things that the Iraqis are asking the United States to do. But the Iraqis could force an issue with the United States um, that brings us to a moment of truth in that relationship. And the situation between our two countries could change a great deal, especially if the president makes good on this threat to sanction the Iraqi government, even after the United States has spent, gosh, I don't even want to speculate, untold hundreds of billions of dollars rebuilding Iraq, building Iraqi institutions, supplying the Iraqi government with material and equipment and weapons, training Iraqi forces twice, not only after the original invasion, but then again to be able to fight ISIS under President Barack Obama. The value to many in the national security establishment of Iraq at this point basically is of sunk cost fallacy, that we've expended so much blood and treasure there. The United States has made such extensive commitments since 9-11 there that you can't help but continue to try to preserve that relationship. Trump, when he speaks, indicates that he's willing to cut bait and say, no, we're not going to do that. But the way the Trump administration acts and the way his uh, officials act, the Defense Department, the State Department and others, they're managing a very tactical response to events there almost on an hour by hour basis. And that's what we're seeing. So if it seems like a confusing story, it is. And everyone involved, to me, appears to be confused. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Well, let me... Add another layer of perhaps confusion. As as a layperson sitting in Ohio, I read s- stories from New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, saying the United States is washing its hands of the fight against ISIS. We're we're quitting that fight. Others can have that fight. That doesn't, as as a layperson, make me feel very secure. Am I missing something? On on the one hand, it should make you feel secure because the danger posed by ISIS to the West and the United States has been diminished to a great degree as compared with a couple of years ago. On the other hand, the threat from terrorism, 
will never go down to zero. And it's not clear to me how the events following the death of Qasem Soleimani are going to affect the operations of the coalition led by the United States, which has been fighting ISIS in Syria and Iraq. One question is how long the stop in operations will take place. The anti-ISIS coalition is no longer fighting ISIS today because the American forces deployed to do that are being shifted into a phase of readiness in case there's a confrontation with Iran. How long will that last? When will they start back up again? And what can ISIS do with this respite that it's getting from that coalition in terms of managing its own operations and potentially plotting terrorist attacks against the West? I don't know the answer to that. But at the same time, the ISIS caliphate, you'll hear the president say, has been defeated. That's true. The uh, many square miles of territory in northern Syria, western Iraq, and northern Iraq that ISIS wants control have been denied it. And its ability to bring those populations into bondage and slavery in a lot of cases and use the resources that it had there to take oil from Syria and raise revenue from sales on the black market, a lot of that has been denied. So ISIS isn't wiped out in the same way that very few of these terror organizations since 9-11 ever get wiped out to a level of zero. But the United States and its allies have done a lot of work reducing the threat that they once posed. So speaking of Syria, what does Assad do uh, sitting with his neighbors in conflict now with the United States in various forms? What's Syria's role in all of this? That's a great question. Bashar Assad, um, who is the strongman who runs Syria, has basically inherited about half of a country or three quarters of a country. And um, the rest has been destroyed and also kind of turned into these zones of influence, especially in the north um, between uh, the Syrians, the Turks and the Russians following the change in policy ordered by President Trump from a few weeks ago. And that change in policy didn't involve the full withdrawal of American forces from Syria. As we talked about earlier, there are still some uh, mechanized forces in eastern Syria. But Assad has to look around and think that he kind of lucked out. He was under a lot of pressure from world powers in the United States. Historically, you know, the past administration under President Barack Obama, the policy of the United States was for Assad to leave power in Syria as part of some kind of international negotiated settlement, and he stuck to his guns and didn't do it. Now the United States effectively has lost interest in the conflict, and he has been able to survive. I don't know exactly how much money and what kind of compromises it would require for Syria to rebuild itself or to build to become something like it once was. Syria will probably never be whole again and never be the same country it was before the conflict, but that is where Assad is now. And to the degree that he took assistance from the Russians and the Iranians, this confrontation with Iran and the United States after the death of Qasem Soleimani will complicate what is his big picture strategic goal about rebuilding Syria. Um, one other party in southern Syria is Israel. Iran used Syria during the war as a way to try to ship weapons two uh, proxies, including Hamas and Hezbollah in uh, the Middle East, which are the traditional enemies of, of Israel, Israel, 
and the Israelis launched airstrikes themselves into Syria, including using their new American-built F-35 stealth fighters to destroy what were described as rockets or anti-aircraft weapons or other tools that Iranians or their proxies, proxies could use against the Israelis. The Israeli uh, aspect and the proxy war by Iran against Israel is another unbalanced part of this equation because one way in which Middle Eastern potentates have tried to get revenge on the West and the United States in the past is by attacking their allies, including Saudi Arabia and including Israel. What isn't clear to us today is whether the Iranians will try to do that, and if so, whether that might involve Assad and the Syrians. But when uh, the successor to Qasem Soleimani, who runs the Quds Force, whose name I uh, don't know, looks at his menu of options around the Middle East, one of them could involve Assad, Syria, and potentially some kind of mischief there against the Israelis. I'd like to focus now on the the Iranian people. Obviously, uh, Iran is not a country that is uh, speaks with one voice. They had many voices going on uh, until the assassination of General Soleimani. Now it seems at least temporarily uh, all people have come together against the common enemy being, being the United States. Uh, you've studied this region. Is that something that will last or is that something that the Americans can wait out? Boy, that's a great question. That is the biggest and most important question following Soleimani's death, I think, because the past practice by the United States was to keep policy toward Iran channeled between a lower bound and an upper bound in terms of what steps the Americans were prepared to take with the lower bound being all-out war and the upper bound being total normalization and rapprochement. And if you want to think about the two extremes, one of them was under President Obama when the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the nuclear deal as we call it, was concluded and the United States basically tried to bring Iran into the Commonwealth of Nations with the strategic bet that doing so would change Iran's internal dynamics so much that moderate, uh, liberalizing democratic forces would change its behavior in the region. And then the other extreme is the one espoused by the current administration, which basically has taken the calculation that no amount of strength against Iran is too much because it believes that maybe the Iranian regime is irredeemable and that there is no way that the community of nations can go into uh, a situation with Iran and have there be a constructive outcome for all concerned. What Soleimani's death uh, does is make it almost impossible for forces within Iran to talk seriously about rapprochement with the West and the United States because Soleimani wasn't just a government figure and a military general. He was kind of a Che Guevara-like figure across the Middle East, and he had developed this swashbuckling brand, if you like, over many years. People would take selfies with him on the street. He had this big ruby ring that he would wear that kind of became his trademark, and he was always popping up around 
foreign capitals and sometimes he would travel to Moscow and then you would see him a few days later and he would be in Damascus, for example, in Syria. And he was more than just a government figure or a military leader for Iranians who believed in Iranian influence and the brand of Iran as kind of this strategic octopus in the Middle East. Soleimani embodied that and he was the face of that. And his death takes that away. It cuts the heads off the Quds Force, which is the foreign legion of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, which is this paramilitary element within the Iranian establishment that sits at the right hand of the supreme leader and uh, acts as this kind of state within a state. Um, but the death of someone like that is difficult to appreciate for those of us on the outside because there really isn't anyone like that in our world. And so it's not clear whether the calculation for the Iranian regime will be the Americans have demonstrated how far they're willing to go. We have no choice but to capitulate because no one is safe. And if even Qasem Soleimani um, can't be confident about his travels around the Middle East and his work, then the Americans are not fooling around and we need to capitulate. Or will their calculation be the Americans have shown that they are not going to negotiate in bad faith They've already abrogated their part of this nuclear deal, even though we Iranians were within technical compliance. And we're just going to abandon all hope of any negotiations with the West and the United States because we've done that and you can see what it gets us. In other words, which lobes of the Iranian brain, political, religious and leadership brain will be strengthened by this? The initial indications from the public statements by uh, Hassan Rouhani, the president, Zawar Jarif, the foreign minister, and others are that the hardliners were the ones that were strengthened, that they don't believe they can get anything from a negotiation with the United States, and they're going to avenge Soleimani, as Zarif is saying on Tuesday, in a time and place of their choosing with some kind of action or collective action across uh, the world. If they want something as spectacular and devastating to the United States as they consider Soleimani's death to be, that's why the military is so concerned. That's why you've seen these warnings from the Department of Homeland Security about the importance of cybersecurity hygiene, about threat assessments against targets in the United States, and why we're kind of all just on this collective red alert until we feel like whatever revenge they try to take place has taken place, and then maybe we can f move forward. I don't think the United States will ever close the door completely to some kind of negotiation. And there have been some press reports that, in fact, the United States has used um, interlocutors, for example, in Switzerland, to send a message to the Iranians saying they hope that any response is proportional and that this doesn't become a broader conflict. But at the same time, uh, the initial body language out of the Iranians is not one of meekness can, and capitulation. They, they don't appear to be ready to just fold their cards and give the uh, Trump administration everything it wants. Well, in the president, President Trump, uh, saying that he's going to target four, 52 targets in Iran uh, for the 52 hostages taken back in the 80s, and some of those being top cultural icons or, or places uh, to the Iranian people, uh, that that doesn't speak negotiation, <laughs> although they may be uh, sending some outliers to, to talk about that. That seems to be fermenting the, the millions of people we see in the streets. Right. What you'll hear the president's critics say is that he's negotiating by asking for everything and giving nothing. So the president wants there to be a negotiation in which the Iranians don't have any dignity. They... Um, 
have to make further concessions than the ones they've already made. And uh, they have no incentive to come back to the table because there's no hope for them in dealing with this administration. Now, the president and his administration officials, you heard uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo talk about this, will point out very quickly in response to that, that the Iranians have been escalating and causing mischief to a greater degree for the past several months. They attacked ships in the Strait of Hormuz, which we talked about earlier. They launched that attack against the Saudi oil refinery, which constrained Saudi Arabia's outflow for a time. They were responsible for a wave of violence in Iraq against American installations there, including the violence in Baghdad against the U.S. Embassy, which was the news peg for President Trump's action that led to the airstrike against Soleimani and the other paramilitary leaders. And so there's it takes two to tango, according to what you'll hear from administration officials. And the Iranians and their malign activities are obviously a net negative for all the nations in the Middle East and for uh, stability in the region overall. And with that worldview, the rational choice is to speak to them in a language they understand and respond to those weeks and months of incidents and violence with something that will be unambiguously read in Tehran and by the Supreme Leader as a statement by the West that this is not going to be acceptable. And what the president has been trying to do with those threats about broadening attacks in the Iranian homeland and targeting those 52 sites is to say, if you try and kill the U.S. ambassador in Lebanon and destroy the embassy there, for example, you're not just risking the forces that you would have do that because it'll be well defended, but will respond by destroying an oil refinery inside your territory or destroying an ancient site or a religious site or whatever to try and communicate to them that there won't just be a one-for-one response, that any kind of retaliation to this retaliation will incur even worse retaliation. And again, that is a strategic cost that the United States has the power to impose on the Iranians. At the same time, it doesn't uh, seem as the kind of course that you would try and follow if, in fact, what you're trying to do is bring them back to the negotiating table. Um, You have to give them something and you have to give them Um, incentives to be able to do these negotiations. The strategy by President Obama was normalization and the lifting of sanctions. And in one case, the payment uh, of hundreds of millions of dollars or more in cash by the United States to Iran out of accounts that had been frozen as a part of the previous economic pressure brought by the United States and the West. Um, That played very badly with Republicans. President Trump uh, has been critical of almost everything that Obama did, but one of the things about which he was probably most critical was that Iran nuclear deal. And for President Trump and his advisors, especially Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, it's kind of been a prophecy that they argue has come true. If you normalize Iran, give it access to capital, pay it money, even though you're getting a theoretical diminution in its capability to make nuclear weapons, you're turning up the volume on all the other malign things it does all over the place, all over the Middle East. Uh, During Obama's administration, there was talk about more weapons for Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, about a common missile defense shield, and trying to use the power of the United States to counter the non-nuclear mischief as wrought by Iran across the region. There's been some of that. Some of that's continued into the Trump administration. But for the president and Pompeo and their aides, that's not good enough. They want maximum pressure. They want Iran to stop. And they want 
Iran also to make even more concessions on the nuclear program. I don't know how we can get there from here, but if we can, it's probably going to take a long time, and it may not even take place in this administration. It may require a new president, either Republican or a Democrat, to come after this one whenever that takes place to try and start over with the Iranians. Phil, thank you so much. As always, you you take extremely complex situations and break them down so that we can understand them. I appreciate you doing that for us. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Today, we've been talking with NPR journalist Phil Ewing about the current crises with Iran and Iraq. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One. And Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 